genuine question now. Go ahead. When was the last time you experienced decent, not even like exceptional, just decent customer service? Oh, long time ago. I mean, there's no secret formula for it yet. What we do know is that most companies seem to be pretty bad at it. But not you, my friend, not you, listener. Oh, no. You can create an amazing customer service experience when you use the brand new service hub from HubSpot. Yep, this all-new service hub from HubSpot brings customer service and support together in one simple but powerful platform so you can deliver the best experience possible. And of course, it's powered by AI, not Al, AI, meaning your team can automate those tedious tickets from people who've clearly not read your frequently asked questions. Pain in the backside, aren't they? Oh, and by the way, organizations using HubSpot Service Hub are resolving tickets 13 times faster, helping them to close 42% more tickets per day. That means increasing retention by more than 80%. Thank you, people at HubSpot who, who did the maths on that one, because I wouldn't be able to. I love a bit of data. Did you also know, Al, that it consolidates your entire internal knowledge base into one place? So no matter who is working on support, they'll have the answers at their fingertips. I did know that because I wrote that for you. Well, there you have it. Stand out from the crowd and migrate to HubSpot Service Hub today. Visit HubSpot.com slash service and learn how this all-new solution can help you deliver for your customers. A lot of the work of a, of a really good people team is identifying what's needed and what we can what we can create for people. Hello and welcome to the Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture podcast brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. My name is Leanne. I'm a business psychologist. My name is Al and I'm a business owner. We are here to help you simplify the science of people and create amazing workplace cultures. Yeah, and if you're joining us on YouTube, you'll notice there's yet another different background. That's because we are now in, in uh, Mostar in Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, one of our favourite countries. It's just an incredible place. And only because a bag of ice is like a quid for like three kilos, but uh, but also just beautiful people, beautiful countryside and just a wonderful place, isn't it? Yeah, we're having a lovely time here. It's um, It very much feels like home. Mm. Um, but this will be our setup for, for a few episodes now, I think, won't it? Yeah, we should be in this house for about uh, for about four weeks and then we're looking for somewhere, hopefully, for a year. So um, you'll be, we'll be coming to you from BIH for hopefully a, year's, a, a long year. Today, we are talking about human-centred workplaces. Yeah, now this is the one of the last episodes we got with our water, some of our water cooler guests. We've also got some other people on there as well, um, and um, we wanted to we wanted to group these all together because although they are very different guests with kind of different backgrounds and different job titles, Leanne felt that this was a good theme, and also there's so much stuff around human centric workplaces at the moment, isn't there, Lee? Yeah, it does seem to be a phrase that seems to have popped up and really gained momentum, whether you say human-centered workplace, human-centric workplaces, they both basically mean that we design work around humans, not around the work or the jobs. So we have three awesome experts that will help us dive into that today. So before we do that, it's our t- favorite time of the week. It's the news roundup. Cue the jingle. What have you got, Lee? Well, I have a word of the week. Word of the week alert. Career cushioning. Oh, career cushioning. You normally ask me what, what I think it is. I do. 
Hmm. Now, what's interesting, I, I don't, obviously, I don't see these beforehand, so I'm, I'm just genuinely guessing. Career cushioning, I would think, is something like maybe you have a particularly strenuous project or job or role for a bit, then you might take a little bit of a slack time, and then you go back into another one. So if you're a sort of a type A personality, you might be like full on for three months, and then you might take a month off to go and do something which still work, but perhaps a little bit easier. A bit cushy. A bit cushy. That's that's where I was going. That's the cushy yeah. side of it, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> I like that, though. I like that. No, the idea of career cushioning is basically you look for, you basically keep your eyes and ears open uh, for any jobs that might be of interest or might be suitable for you whilst you're already in employment. The idea is it's kind of having a plan B in case you're hit by redundancy or job insecurity or something happens at the workplace it's, it's basically just making sure you're not putting all your eggs in in one basket and that is being termed career cushioning that makes sense so i mean someone once told me that it's like you should act like a monkey never let go of one branch until you got hold of another so you're kind of doing the similar sort of thing in that you you're just you're just looking out for stuff that would be really good and you don't want to let go of your current position until you've actually got a new position, is that it? Or you're just actually just actively looking out for new new roles? Just, yeah, I guess you're kind of, you know, you've heard of like quiet, quiet hiring where organisations don't necessarily advertise jobs, but they'll keep a lookout for people. It's a similar thing, but in reverse. So you're not necessarily, I want to leave my job now or I will lose my leave my job as soon as I find another one. It's more a case of just keeping options open, keeping a lookout, keeping your LinkedIn updated, keeping your network up to date, uh, having conversations, keeping relationships going with recruiters. I think it's smart. There are some people that are questioning the the ethical nature of this to to look for another job whilst you are in employment and and arguably happily in employment i don't see the issue i think i think it's so unpredictable the economy that we're in right now and have been for the past 10 15 years i think anything can happen in terms of of redundancies i think any successful person is usually quite strategic over their career moves and that will mean you know always keeping that eye out for that next possible position i think in terms of an organization you know if you're having these these um these really robust conversations around professional development with your people you'll know fine well if you are an organization that can cater for their future needs and if not how do we make sure that we're supporting that person in the long term because uh, ultimately what was that i know it's so cliche but i think that richard branson quote is really really bang on you know treat people was it train people so they can leave treat people so they won't oh I like um, that. and i think that's i think that's the the ethos I would always go down is, you know, people want to develop and they're going to leave at some point if we can't provide those opportunities. Um, so, yeah, career cushioning. I think I think it's smart. It is. Sounds good. What else you got, Lee? Oh, well, a little little story talking about career cushioning and why it's important in this unstable, unstable economy. Wilkinson's, the UK discount chain. Al, have you heard? I did, unfortunately. Yeah, they are in a bit of a pickle. So as of the 10th of August, they did collapse into administration, putting 400 jobs, uh, sorry, 400 shops and 12,000 jobs at risk. Um, it's really sad. 90 years Wilco's has been going. If you haven't heard of Wilkinson's, our North American listeners or Australian listeners, how do you describe it, Al? Wilkie's. 
Um, I suppose like a cut price Target. I mean, we've been told that Target is kind of like just general, like a Walmart, but not without. So Wilco's doesn't really do food. It'll do things like you can go and buy foil or you can go and buy toilet roll. You can go and buy cable ties. You can go and buy um, shampoo. It's just this discount store. And I'm guessing what they did in the past was make deals with certain, like much like Costco does, make deals, buy in bulk, and they can sell it a little bit cheaper. Um it's it's always had the kind of a strange place in our hearts as Brits because it's not somewhere where you'd necessarily want to be seen shopping. Um, like, you know, if, if I think a lot of people will go to Wilkinson's and take a different bag, a Sainsbury's carrier bag or <laughs> like a different supermarket carrier bag to put their stuff in because they don't want to be seen that they've been, uh, they've been shopping in Wilco's. To be honest, I think most, if you ever go to a park in the UK and you find someone weird sitting on a bench drinking cider at nine in the morning, there's a good chance they've got a Wilkinson's carrier bag next to them with all their stuff in it. I'd yeah. say that fair. So that's fair. But yeah, it's had over you know, almost 100 years of trading, 12,000 jobs at risk. What was really cool about this story, though, it, it's still ongoing. Currently, rescue efforts are still ongoing for finding a, a buyer to, to save Wilkinson and its staff. In the meantime, though, we've had lots of other organizations, retailers such as similar, similar, I guess what you'd call competitors, uh, people like B&M, Poundland, actually post on LinkedIn and offer support and potential jobs to any staff that are at risk as well of course a savvy move because you know if you're looking for staff you've got a lot of qualified people about to pop out onto the job market but equally i thought it was just a quite nice sentiment you know if all these people are at risk and starting to worry just to have a couple of companies come out connect with people directly on linkedin and say get in touch we might be able to find something for you i thought that was quite nice as it stands nobody has been made redundant from wilkinson's rescue efforts as i mentioned are continuing so we'll we'll see what happens but yeah i'm sure a very a very nervous and uncomfortable time for for those many many people that are, are currently waiting to see what happens as a, from a business point of view, I'm always a little bit, not sceptical, but concerned about a business that is very low margin, works on high volume, low margin. Uh, the, I mean, Costco obviously are doing it well, but Walmart, um, and I think it's Sam's Club, which is part of Walmart, it's like their Costco's equivalent. Anything that's, that's low margin, high volume, I always feel is a bit risky. So um, if you are in that job, then perhaps you want to be doing a little bit of career cushioning just to... Uh, have a little look around. How about that for a, uh, Very for a past nice. referral reference? Very nice. What else you got, Lee? Well, you will remember from not too long, was it last week? I feel like my weeks are rolling into, was it last week we talked about? No, it's birthday last week, wasn't it? I have no idea. No, no, um, yes, no, I think birthday was two weeks ago. But anyway, it was in the last two weeks. <laughs> At some point this month, we did an episode on the psychology of happiness. <laughs> August has lasted for ages, hasn't I it? I know, it's weird, isn't it? So, yeah. The, the, the psychology of happiness episode after that I got reflecting and started to wonder I wonder what my network would say um, to the question should leaders be responsible for employee happiness if you haven't listened to that episode or if you can't remember our stance on it go back and listen uh, so I did a little poll I did a poll on LinkedIn Al. Um, so I asked people exactly that are leaders responsible for the happiness of their employees the poll was not conclusive. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Uh, so I think we had about a third of people say yes, a third of people say no, and a third of people say other. Uh, so there didn't seem to be much consensus on that. I can't see who voted for what, but I did ask people to leave a comment to explain the answer that they gave. And I thought there were some very insightful people that I thought would maybe share some of, some of their idea. comments. Lovely. Yeah. So if I'm looking this way, it's because I'm reading the, the comments. So excuse me. 
but yes, so our first comment was, was from Danielle Wood. Danielle is a highly experienced HR professional consultant and coach that specializes in creating inclusive workplaces. She said, I think that happiness is a state that comes and goes like the seasons. If you don't ex experience the others, you don't appreciate when it's good. I think rather than being responsible for happiness, the leader is responsible for creating a psychologically safe space where people feel included, have purpose, have clarity, have opportunities for personal growth and have the tools and support to achieve things. In doing this, people can flourish, build meaningful relationships, feel empowered to fulfill potential and feel they are really seen and heard. All of this culminates in a strong sense of well-being and moments of happiness. Lovely. Well said, Danielle. Well, well said. What is it? Is it uh, Dolly Parton who says, if you want the rainbow, you've got to put up with the rain. I think um, that's, that's, that is, to me, that's the whole point of happiness is that happiness is an elevated state to, you've got to have both. You've got to have unhappiness and happiness because otherwise happiness just becomes the norm. And then you're searching for, and then you become one of these weird people who are just searching always searching for the next thing that's going to make them happy so no well yeah well said totally agree. i thought i thought that was a mic drop moment from danielle there uh, we also had a comment from Haley reese uh, Haley is a content marketer and works very closely with bernard brogan who was on our founder series not too long ago Haley said i think ultimately our happiness is our responsibility but leaders, managers and work in general has a massive impact on our lives. So I don't think it's a leadership responsibility, but employee happiness is a priority for all great leaders. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I quite like that as well. I, I quite like that it was a, a case of ultimately it's our responsibility, but let's not let's not forget the impact that our leaders and managers can have on our on our mood and on our happiness. So yeah, and I, I like that great leaders will take that in as a priority and finally i have a comment from jordan wilcock who is police detective at greater manchester police i thought this summed up everything really beautifully he said leaders shouldn't be responsible for employee happiness but they are most certainly responsible for employee unhappiness oh nice nice well put, Jordan. That was fantastic. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliantly summarized there. Thank you so much. Thank you to everybody that voted, everybody that commented. Maybe we'll do that, do that again in the future. Lovely. Lovely. So have we got anything else we've got to talk about before we we jump into our guests? No, that's me. So in this episode, we are talking about human-centric workplaces, and we have three awesome guests who are joining us to help us do that and specifically talk through the three main traits or characteristics of a human-centered workplace. Okay, so first of all, we've got Catherine Della Poa. Um, I think it's Della Poa. I'm sure Catherine will tell us if we get that wrong. Uh, she's a leadership coach and an expert in emotional intelligence. She founded a consultancy back in 2017 called Halcyon. Uh, cool name, I like that. And she's also an adjunct professor at Holt International School of Business. So here's Catherine. I um, work with individuals, with teams, particularly lots of teaming work right now and organizations to create healthy human systems at work. Our second guest is Stacey Thompson. Stacey is a qualified mental health practitioner and the founder and CEO of The Performance Club, a mental wealth consultancy. Yeah, my name is Stacey. 
I my background is I'm a mental health nurse um, and I did a, an MSc in organization psychology, but also I'm the founder of uh, the performance club. So I do a bit of performance coaching, a bit of training, uh, but also around the Minds at Work Network for a while. And I'm also an advisory board of Mad World and the Water Cooler. And finally, Mel Murphy, who is the senior people manager at a company called Birdie. Really interesting company, by the way. Go and have a look at them. Uh, it's a home healthcare technology company that operates in UK and Europe and is growing phenomenally fast. So here's Mel explaining what Birdie does. Birdie is a, a tech startup on the mission to, to solve the social care crisis. Um, we've created an app that is a, essentially a communication pathway between visiting carers and the loved ones of older adults. And, and that way... Um, kind of working towards making sure that older adults can um, age with confidence and, and age in their own homes rather than in nursing homes or um, or hospital where the prognosis isn't isn't so good. So shall we start me with the burning question that I've got, even though I wrote the title for this, is what is a human centric workplace? It is a good question and a good place to start, Al. I like how you've struck this episode, the uh, the important questions up front. Uh, but yes, human-centred <laughs> workplace. It's an extension, really, in terms of the term of, of human-centred design, which is what I understand to be a problem-solving technique basically puts people at the center of it um, and the five, five steps of that if you are interested is to empathize to find ideate prototype and test so an extension of those types of ideas so a human-centric workplace is one that revolves around its people and really will consider their specific needs as i said it's about the human and the person rather than necessarily the work so using human-centered design to craft our workplaces, it probably won't come as too much a surprise that really that's going to be very much based on asking our people what they need, what's going to, you know, that empathic concern, what is going to make their jobs easier, um, understanding their pain points and designing our workplace to meet needs and remove pains. It could also be called an employee-centric workplace or a people-first workplace. So while this isn't necessarily a a term that psychologists have necessarily come up with. I think it's really stemmed from more um, management and business in, in general in terms of theory and practice um, rather than psychology. With that in mind, I would I probably wouldn't call it necessarily a type of culture, but more a philosophy that would sit behind leadership and organizational development. I think psychology is maybe more likely to talk about psychologically healthy workplaces or empathic workplaces. So different terms, but very much the same principles, ultimately about making work rewarding, making it meaningful and preventing psychological harm. So as always, I'm going to ask the question, sounds lovely, but is there a business case for this? Yeah, well, it's, you know, as we've talked a lot about culture before and putting people at, at the heart of culture and the benefits that come with that in terms of specific research that's done around human centric work models, research by Gartner has shown that when people are seen as people and not just resources, they are 3.8 times more likely to be high performing. They're also 3.2 times more likely to stay within their job and 1.3 times more likely to see lower levels of of fatigue, uh, so much higher levels of resilience there. So Gartner's research went on to identify the three pillars of a human-centric workplace. And these three are what we're going to talk about today. They are intentional collaboration, flexible work experiences, and empathy-based management. 
you, you, I think regular listeners will know that I'm always looking for like this. Leanne's like, this is the perfect. This is what this is the nice to have. I'm always looking for the business case behind it. We have all of our guests have got massive experience in this in this field. Um, and they all talk like very realistically and practically about these kind of steps. So should we kick off for the first one, Lee? Yes. So the first pillar of a human centric workplace is intentional collaboration, intention. I think intention is the word of 2023. It seems to come up every episode and not just from us, from our from our guests as well. So this is really about intentionality of thinking. You're 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 actively working to establish a human centric workplace, being intentional about designing a workplace for humans and for create creativity and collaboration. Let's hear more from Catherine. As we start putting in place measures for what it means to be human at work, um, as we start to think about what does it mean to be a high performance organisation, we have to start looking at the psychology of human beings to really understand what that what that means. Um, and that is about, obviously, physical health, very, very important, um, mental health. And, if, and, and this, you know, the mind-body connection, we're starting to learn so much more about that, that actually the two things are completely interconnected. Um, and then, you know, we all also have a sort of metaphysical life, a spiritual life, which is why actually um, understanding ourselves through the lens of the arts, um, through creativity. So that was Catherine Delapoa from Halcyon. Um, being intentional about your work environment means thinking about the humans. It's no longer about trying to get the most out of your employees, as Stacey explains. Organisations now need to think about how do we lean into human behaviour? How do we lean into the human condition? How do we help our employees emotionally manage themselves better, become more mentally agile, think about cognitive flexibility. I love teaching the concept of the corporate athlete, uh, which is all about, you know, you see athletes who literally spend hours and hours and hours training for one-off event where they're then going to be measured for their success, right? Whereas us as executives, we spend all of our hours performing on what we're going to be measured about and, and literally basic 10% on practicing, which is silly. <laughs> uh, and it's interesting because when you teach it, even the human, the employee, really struggle with the concept because we've got so addicted or so entrenched in this belief that, uh, you know, working harder produces more when actually it's about working better in a healthier way in the, in the view that, you know, the energy that you give out, you must also take back in because your body needs to be able to perform at its very best. And it can't do that if you're just depleting it all the time of lots of energy. Intentionality isn't just about strategy, though. It's about being very clear about what solves a problem from the perspective of your employees. This is very much that adult to adult conversation. And you know the word for that, regular listeners. That is called employee voice Birdie were very intentional in using employee voice when it came to putting together their benefits packages. Let's hear more on that from Mel Murphy at Birdie. And our values aren't necessarily to offer the best benefits package, but to offer the most sustainable um, benefits package. So to make sure that what we're delivering is actually what people need. I think this is the thing when we when we talk about well-being, there are so many products and so many really well-intentioned offerings out there that 
a lot of the work of a, of a really good people team is identifying what's needed and what we can what we can create for people. Um, and a, a lot of that work happens before you before you adopt a product or, or a platform. A lot of that work happens in creating psychological safety and developing your ways of working so that they support flexibility and um, support people being their whole selves at work. If you've ever met Stacey Thompson, you'll find that she's larger than life. She's got en- boundless energy. And it won't surprise you to hear that Stacey also thinks we should be intentional in our lives as well. We really need to be more intentional. Um, as a as a society, I'm not talking just about employers. I'm talking about as human beings, we need to stop getting carried away by all of these things that have been put into the world to make other people money, but to get us addicted to it, because those are unha- they're harmful for us for our longevity. You know, if I look at sustainability of the human as us as humans, you know, if I think if we can't carry on on the current trajectory you know that doesn't look very good in my eyes you know so just reinforces like i say why i'm on this planet you know i think i'm on this planet to help others to create a great change for a great amount of people and all of this stuff just reinforces that yeah what i'm doing is right so stacy really gets to the heart of intentional collaboration here she means she says it's about discussing and making decisions for the long-term benefit of us all Now, intention to be human-centric starts with the company and its leadership, and that intention needs to be shared with its employees. So once we've decided we're going to be intentional about human-centric, we now need to be a lot more intentional about our mission and our purpose. What's the reason that people come to work for us? Birdie have always been very intentional by outlining their mission from day one, and that's ensured that every individual at Birdie is very clear on their intentions too. There are some regular retreats that Birdie run that allow everyone in the company to be really clear on why they work there, which in turn leads to an amazing culture of community and shared purpose. Here's Mel to explain more. So we have we have four co-founders who are still very, very active in, in our day to day. Max, our CEO, um, and Gwen, our uh, chief information security officer, um, were the, kind of the, the two Uh, who really came up with the idea um, based on an experience that Max had with his grandparents. And so it's, it's always been um, the mission has always been very personal. We, we have a retreat, a company retreat every year where we all go over kind of why we're here and that it's really interesting to hear those stories change over time. Um, But every single person at Birdie has a reason to be there um, and has a very personal reason for being there. It's It's a highly, highly emotional session um we do it we do it every year and i'm always surprised by how many tears there are um but also brings us all much closer together because we all know why we're there and it really helps us kind of feel united in in driving our mission so this year for the first time in fact last week we had um three different retreats kind of two days for groups of teams so we had a a commercial a delivery and a core operations retreat which gave each of those kind of groups of teams um opportunity to really strategize together to really bond we have a very flat structure at birdie so it's operationally really important that we all get together and we strategize together and we're all really aligned with the direction that we're going in and we all have an opinion and are able to share that opinion in a forum with our peers so that's definitely a focus for us moving forward kind of getting better at doing those smaller retreats 
So we asked Catherine, what is this business case for intentionality? Why do we have to think carefully about what culture we intend to create? Catherine explains. So we we get to choose to put a million pounds, a million dollars into a business. And we're looking at these two businesses dispassionately, which is what in, institutional investors or venture capitalists, private equity companies do. They look at these businesses. Okay, what, what do the numbers look like? And then you start to scratch below the surface of numbers. And let's imagine you've got company A and company B. And you know, for example, that absence rates in company B are very, very high, that burnout rates in company B are really, really high. So what does that tell you about the culture, what it feels like to work around here? It's clearly got a problem. We are seeing more and more investors request people and culture data in their due diligence. If you are looking to scale and exit your business, these are metrics you need to be collecting. These are metrics your investors will want to see in the future. High turnover, absenteeism, burnout, they're bad for business and they're bad news for investors. Human-centered businesses don't experience these issues. And that is not only good for business, it's very good for growth. Birdie were very intentional about their culture and they knew once they reached 100 employees, they needed an in-house people and culture team to help them with their workplace culture. And as a result, they have seen huge growth. Um, but our first formal people hire was around 100 people. Um, and so we've been really intentional in, in growing the people function as being super data-led, um, super forward-thinking. I personally have spent 13 years in, in tech for good startup. And so I have a lot of experience of, of the impact of being really mission-driven um, and what that does to people because people really feel our mission. They care so much about it that they put everything into it. And so the way that we need to care for those people is unique. We need to, we need to make sure that we're being really proactive. We may, need to make sure that we're being really targeted because... Ultimately, we are a B Corp startup as well. So we don't have, you know, the bags of, of budget that some big corporations have to throw into well-being initiatives. And instead, we have a very, very well-intentioned and experienced people team um, building really targeted initiatives and making sure that what we are building is is what people need and at the right time rather than too late, which it tends to be what happens, as you alluded to, when people don't hire people teams early on. Okay, so that is the first foundation of a human-centric workplace, intentional collaboration. If we were to sum that up, Leah, have you got a few pithy words you can throw at us? I think it's being intentional around being people first, making that commitment at the highest level at senior leadership and at board level. Second, it's then translating that into a clear vision and purpose for your team. We're all motivated by something that we believe in. So to be human centric, we need to be uniting people in that shared vision. Three, employee voice sits at the heart of intentional collaboration and human-centric cultures. So we really need to be embracing that. And bonus, employee voice is going to give us the metrics that our investors want to see, should we want to scale our business. And also we know from what we've heard from our experts and from the research that things like burnout, absenteeism, presenteeism and turnover are typically very, very low in human-centric organisations. Lovely. Okay, so that's number one. The second of three foundations is flexible work experiences. Leah, what do we need to know about this? 
flexible work experiences. This really is the conversation of the moment, isn't it? Is it remote work? Is it back to the office? Which one's right? Which one's wrong? And the answer, as always, is somewhere in the middle. And this is what flexible work experience is all about. Most business leaders will accept now that change is the only constant. We can just we can just rely on the fact that at some point shit's going to hit the fan and things are going to go wrong again. And I think what the pandemic was really awesome for is it showed actually how adaptable we are and actually how many businesses were able to flip to a remote, a fully remote model very quickly and for the vast majority very effectively. I don't think it really matters where businesses fall, whether they're remote first, whether they're office first. I would imagine that all businesses now within their business continuity plans will have a scenario for another pandemic, for another circumstance where we will all need to flip to remote work again. And this is where having a human centric workplace with flexible work built within it is not only going to be supportive for our people and their needs, but also for our business in this VUCA world that we live in. Do you remember VUCA, Al? Do you remember what it stands for? Uh, Something uncertainty calamity and the almighty god coming down and sending a plague no i don't remember what vucca is what does it stand for uh, volatile uncertain complex and ambiguous basically we don't know what's around the corner we have no idea so being flexible is really all we can hope for i think as well you know change is inevitable as an organization grows and growth is one of the biggest threats to culture and this is where we can see leaders be very protective over the culture and trying to keep it the same. We've talked before on the podcast about how actually rather than trying to protect your culture, look at perhaps evolving your culture and giving your team the autonomy and agility they need to not only um, navigate their roles and the different circumstances that come with it, but also be more agile to change. Embracing change and flexibility in the workplace was also a recurrent theme amongst our guests today. Mel highlighted the need for a flexible culture that evolved with the organisation, while Stacey advocated for embracing change and discomfort for growth. Catherine also emphasised that redefining productivity and collaboration is really important. Being resilient in the face of change is a great trait, but in some cases you need to actually welcome change. Here's Catherine. So, you know, we can we can be pulled towards things, love, trust, irresistible organizations, which put human experience front and center. Um, or we can run away because we're afraid, because we're fearful. And for me, I think a lot of the 20th century within organizations, within the workplace, were really built on the back of quite old school models of how humans are motivated, what what makes humans tick. And there was very much a kind of carrot and stick approach. Um, you know, I'm the boss and you're going to do what I say, which is actually now that we know everything we know about humans and human psychology and intrinsic motivation, we understand that that actually goes completely against what it means to be human, um, what it means to be a productive citizen, what it means to be um, somebody who engages with a full heart at work. And people are saying, no, this isn't working for me anymore. I'm actually deeply unhappy. I'm stressed out. We're seeing burnout rates at a ridiculous level now in organisations. People are resigning left, right and centre. We've got a million um, job vacancies open 
right now in the United Kingdom, um, something's got to go, something's got to change. And I think we've got, there's a huge opportunity now to create the most amazing, healthy workplaces fit for humans. The other benefit to change is that it does create this tension and challenges, which sounds like it's not a benefit, but it is. Because the human, requ- human mind requires this very fine balance. This is what I've learned from Leanne. Too much change makes us feel threatened and stressed and we're on high alert. And if we're left like that too long, we can experience this burnout. But the same is true if we're not challenged. If we're bored or we see no meaning in our work, there's no opportunity to progress, then that's called rust out, which we talked about about six episodes ago. And both both of these are bad for our mental health. So we need this balance. So some change and challenge is good for the mind, the body and the soul because it makes us feel alive, as Stacey explains. I think the only thing that we know about life is that change is like, it happens every day. And like, I think people are scared to be uncomfortable, but if you're not uncomfortable, you're not growing and you're not learning. Like, I think sometimes we're more accepting of some of these things. Like, I find it really weird that people like sign up to uni. I mean, uni's like it's, I did a master's for a year. And like, I had, the only reason I got through it is because first of all, I'm not a quitter. And second of all, I like, I said to myself at the start, like this year's going to be hell. Like, I know it's going to be hell, but I'm going to get through it. And I used to say that to myself when I was knee deep in assignments. And I think, Somehow we we seem to get over that. Like we seem to get over the concept of this is going to be dreadful if it if I'm going to get a degree at the end of it. But we're not so great at that in our day-to-day life. We seem to think that there's there's no challenge. And like the challenge is in the journey, right? The challenge is every day, like expanding your brain to learn new things and to do new things and experiencing new things. And I think the problem with the actual problem is when you become static. Your brain like doesn't know how to cope with that. Like we're, we're on this planet to grow. Another change we're seeing um, as part of this progression is, and particularly in high stress environments, is the phasing out of competitive workplaces and old fashioned managers. In fact, it's probably down to those pesky Gen Zers again, um, who are demanding that this workplace is changing into this new type of culture. What's really, really interesting to me is seeing how the science is changing from, you know, compete, compete, compete to actually human beings over the past thousands of years. What has enabled us to survive and thrive has actually been our kindness and our ability to collaborate. It's not the compete. It's actually the kindness and the collaboration. And I think that and I think the over-financialization of, sister, of, us, of the system that we live in has pitted us against each other. And I think power, power dynamics in systems have pitted us against each other. The haves, the have not. So I think that's, that's the big, that's the change I'm looking for. So providing a great workplace environment is all about helping our people to create these boundaries that's going to help them live healthily and also socialise freely. Socialisation at work was maybe once a no-no. And I think, you know, these days we've not only learned that socialisation is really important to make work more human-centric, but also to create these psychologically safe environments. We want to to trust people. We want to have positive relationships with our peers, with our colleagues, with our managers to spark this collaboration and creativity. 
Catherine explains how Google did this. Google has been famous for this. They they now, you know, going to the gym, t- taking a run, going on whatever, all of that stuff, yoga, the physical exertion to get your mind in the right place. They're, you know, that's that's part of a Google employees every day now. It's not just something you do kind of on the side. So they've brought all of this stuff in to, so, you know, focused work, collaborative working, um, rest and recovery, and socializing. Guess what? Socializing is part of how humans work. If you think about the process of creativity and innovation, I need to socialize the idea. I need to push the idea through the organization. I need to kind of get get feedback from people. So I think um, this sort of one-dimensional view of what it is to for, for a human to be productive is just being smashed. And we realize that actually there is multiple modes of working. And um, that's what that's what organizations have the opportunity to embrace. In fact, resisting change is massively counterproductive. It might feel really natural to be protective of our culture. But as you grow, and even more so for high growth companies, your culture will change. Mel talks about this as culture ad. I've worked in so many startups where there is this narrative around protecting culture. We must protect the culture. The culture must stay the same. When actually, if you're really embracing culture and values, what your culture should be doing with every single person that leaves and joins is adapting slightly, flexing slightly. The intentions should be the same and we should make sure that those intentions follow through in all the work that we do. But our culture will change and it will shift because everyone who comes in is a culture add, is a value add. And we need to be able to embrace that change. We need to like we need to appreciate it for what it is because it's it's a really cool and beautiful thing that everyone who comes in has something to add to our product, to our culture, to our mission. It is really important to accept, though, that this kind of change doesn't happen overnight. Rarely any change does. It requires some time, some patience and this openness to learning. Here's Stacey to explain a bit more. And what they say is that you a small habit will take about 30 days to change, a medium habit like three months and a, a bigger habit six months, right? But that's when you're practicing that every single day. Like we call it deliberate practice, right? So it's a bit like if I was to turn, if you were to tell me that you wanted to become a really great pianist, like you couldn't just decide that today and then tomorrow play me a bit of Mozart, right? You would have to go through like some sort of form of learning, teaching and practice in order to get where you need to be. And even then you would still have to maintain that to keep your skills up, right? And it's exactly the same thing when it comes to our mental health, right? So if we want to work on something, we have to do the learning, do the developing. We might get a teacher to help us and we need to deliberately practice every day until we get to a point where we think, yeah, we've got this. But then we also have to maintain it, which most people don't want to do. (laughs) They want a quick fix, which is why our pharmaceutical business is so massive, right? So before we go on to number three, can you just sum up for us? flexible work experiences, Lee? Yeah, I think flexible work experience is about creating that flexibility for our people to help them build resilience to change. Change is is going to stay with us. So I think it really is about creating environments in which people feel able, resilient and agile to the, the changes that are inevitably going to come up, whether within our control as a, as a growth organization or whether it be external factors. 
The second, I think leadership being open to change and also change within the organization. As you grow, your culture, your organization will change, your role within it will change too. It's being open to that and embracing that. And I think finally doing those two things is going to help build positive relationships within your organization. And as we know, they are the key to psychological safety, which in turn is the key to creativity and collaboration. Fabulous. That was foundation number two. Foundation number three is empathy-based management. Lee, what do we need to know about this? Well, a strong trait in people who are empathetic and compassionate is emotional intelligence. It helps us be a better leader. It helps us be a better team player. And all in all, being honest, just a better person. You know, empathy-based management is something that is talked about more and more frequently. And I think that the key for me, there's different elements of, of empathy. I think the key for me and the one that seems to resonate most with the people that may be a bit more skeptic or think this is a bit fluffy and soft to be empathetic as a leader is empathic concern. What can I do as a leader to make your job easier and make you more productive? The importance of creating workplaces that prioritize this type of empathy will breed human connection. And that emotional intelligence is also going to be what underpins authentic relationships. All three of our speakers shared this view that empathy is fundamental when it comes to effective management in today's organizations. Mel emphasized that relationship building and a mission-driven culture, while Stacy focused on emotional management. Catherine stressed the importance of power skills and the acknowledgement of emotions at work. Here's Catherine. And I'm particularly interested in emotional intelligence because for me, I think that's the secret source of uh, great leadership. And it is also, um, it's how we make workplaces more human so it's what a lot of people call the soft skills what I like to call human skills or power skills um, so yeah I work with with organizations to to help people to really understand um, the impact of bringing emotion and feeling back to work because when I started 30 years ago emotions weren't really wanted at work. In fact, it was almost like, leave your emotions at the door. They're not required here. I am quickly interrupting this phenomenal podcast to recommend another phenomenal podcast, Nudge. We love Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, a true gent. It is, of course, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. But that is not the only reason we're recommending it, is it, Al? No, it's not. No, we've recommended it to lots of people. If you look at any of our YouTube comments, it won't take you long, there's about 20 of them, <laughs> then you'll see that we recommend Phil uh, to anyone who likes our pod. Well, on Nudge, you're going to learn simple evidence-backed tips. It's going to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, and grow a business. Oh, and it's the UK's fastest growing business podcast. For now. For now, Phil, we're coming for you, buddy. <laughs> if you loved hearing Rory Sutherland from Ogilvy on our show back in episode 83, then Phil's latest episode has Rory on again talking about McDonald's, smoking, and why the pension system is broken. I suppose we should say that actually Rory's been on a couple of times on to nudge. It's not that uh, Phil's seen what we've done and gone, I'll have Rory. So I think it's important yeah, for no, us to Yeah, no, we say copied. That. We copied Phil. Anyway, listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. Just before we go on to Mel to talk about emotional intelligence, I heard what might be the worst example of the difference between empathy and sympathy. 
the other day on Twitter. Leanne's example of the difference between empathy and sympathy is if someone's stuck in a hole, a big hole, then sympathy is standing at the top of the hole and going, oh, that looks horrible. I hope you're okay. Empathy is getting a ladder, getting down into the hole and going, oh, it's dark down here, isn't it? This guy on Twitter was saying, oh, the difference between empathy and sympathy is imagine you're standing on the edge of a ship and someone's throwing up. Sympathy is standing next to them and giving them a sick bag and saying, are you okay? Empathy is throwing up with them. I thought that was a very strange analogy. I'm not sure that's it. <laughs> I don't think it is either. I think it's a good effort. I yeah. admire it. The, the, the try. Good try. C minus. <laughs> so Mel talks about emotional intelligence quite a lot. Now, she said it's sometimes difficult to listen without judgment. And I think all of us struggle with this. But Mel, who seems to have nailed this emotional intelligence, um, has a great way to listen without judgment. I, I practice something called unlimited positive regard. So I will come into every situation. And for anyone who studied mental health first aid, this is a, a key concept of that, um, is not having judgment in any situation. So just being completely open and even if someone is coming at you and going, this is awful, I hate this, you are just a recipient of that. You're hearing it. That's their perspective. That's their lived experience. You have no place to judge in that space. Hear them out and therefore create that, that safety for them so that they continue, can continue to communicate in that way. I think as humans, it's almost impossible for us not to be judgmental in, in some way, you know, we're going to have an opinion on what somebody is thinking or saying or experiencing. I think it's more a case of be just mental. Just shut the fuck up about it. Like, you know, if I'm going to listen to you and be empathetic and, and try and try and help you in this situation, you don't need my opinion. I can have it and I can maybe go back to them, you know, back home to my partner and go, you won't believe what Jeff said today, you know, but I don't, I just don't think I just, you know. So regular listeners will know that Leanne and I used to volunteer for a charity called the Samaritans in the UK. The whole point of that is non-judgmental listening. But it is so difficult to listen to someone and put your judgment to one side, particularly when it's something which you've been in, been through yourself. It can be. And I think, again, this is why, you know, it, as a manager, if there's one skill that you're going to develop, it's that listening skills. And I think really, you know, coaching is a brilliant way to, in terms of training, you know, training in some kind of coach-based leadership is really effective because it teaches you all these skills it's not about changing your opinion it's not about changing how you think things should operate or work it's about learning that your opinion in this moment is not necessary it's not important and it's not going to be helpful lovely lovely we should get a t-shirt with that on <laughs> your opinion is not helpful we don't care. No, we do care <laughs> Ours about is your opinion. Though, all right, that's why I've got podcasts. <laughs> yeah, if you've got a microphone, you're allowed an opinion. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> do you have a microphone? <laughs> yeah, may, maybe that's not a good judgment. We have listened to some podcasts where they perhaps shouldn't have microphones. Anyway, so Ooh, if shade, who? <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. Oh, go on, who? No, 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 no. I'm not saying because the whole point is that is that no it's judgment. The, no judgment. Well, there's plenty of judgment here. So if your workplace feels like it's squeezing every single drop of work from you, then it just feels like you're surviving, not thriving. Now, Catherine talks about this compassionate environment, which helps people to thrive instead. Increasingly, organisations are starting to realise that if you want to have people thriving, you know, that, that there's a scale here, isn't there, between people who are surviving and then 
what we really want with engagement is we want people who are actually thriving, who are leaning into work, where we're, where we're getting more than just a nine to five out of them. Um, so I think there's, 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 huge, there's huge bodies of research now um, that evidence the importance of the investment in whole human being if you want to have a productive, um, high-performing workforce. The perfect example of this is the idea that leaders or management or senior management seem to think that everyone should be at work and doing eight hours of focused, non-stop work. We can't do that. We all know that eight hours of focused work is impossible, like with anything, especially work. There is a recognition of what does it mean to be human? Well, I think one of the things about being human is being on your A game and doing 100% focused work for eight hours a day is just a nonsense. It's just not true. So then what, what is emerging from all of the um, neuroscience now about being in the flow of work, um, because best guess what? That's when we do our best thinking. That's when we do our innovating. And going back to this idea of, you know, if you're an investor, you've got company A, you've got company B, where do you put your money? Do you know what? I want to put my money into that healthy workforce. I want to put my money where people want to go to work, where there are low low indicators of burnout, where there are, you know, where, where people at, are actually um, socializing at work. Um, they're doing focused work for some of the day. Um, but they're also um, collab- doing collaborative working because guess what? That's what humans like to do best. We, we're, we're kind of made for that collaboration social piece where there's also you're building rest and recovery into the working day. Stacey made a really awesome observation. She feels that the pandemic has forced us all to be a little more kind to each other and to ourselves. And I actually think the pandemic enabled us to connect with people in a way we've not been able to do in a long while and also able us to soothe ourselves without the distractions that we often have to pay for because those things weren't available to us. So we had to think outside of the box. Um, And I think also enabled us to... I guess, appreciate somewhat the finer things in life. It kind of calmed that dopamine aspect of us and actually allowed a lot more of the serotonin, longer term happiness, oxytocin type activity, which is caring for each other, hanging out with like one another when we can, communicating, um, all of that stuff. So I think coming out of the pandemic, it just reinforced my values you know, about kind, how much kindness is important, how much friendship is important, how much connection is important. You know, yes, achievement, success, you know, doing well in life. Yeah, it, it can help you along those ways. But if you don't have the fundamental basics, then inevitably you will feel the wrath of the human condition. You will feel disappointed and sad and ashamed and guilty. And Catherine completely agrees. That kindness is the, is the highest form of intelligence. I'm very fortunate to be married to a man who's incredibly kind and it's something that it's it's a value and a and a trait that I that I re- really respect in other people and I think that that is the beginning of change being kind to yourself being compassionate to yourself as as we talked about earlier forgiving self and I think that that has got to be the beginning of 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 a massive transformational change all change has to start with with self 
if you're going to go on some kind of transformation journey, organizational well-being journey, it starts with myself. Um, what is what is the world I want to create? Okay, so we know that compassion means kindness. But what happens when you have to have a difficult conversation with someone, as most leaders at some point in their career will have to do? Well, can you still be compassionate? Mel from Birdie explains that she thinks you can. So I went over this concept that um, there are three types of conversation. All, all conversations fall into one of three types. They are relationship building, possibility building, or moving towards action. And I see them as like a, a child stacking toy, you know, the one with the, the stick and three donuts on it. And the key for me is that that foundational element, which is building a relationship, understanding your peers, understanding your direct reports, understanding your manager in a way that embraces them as their whole self, not just the person that they turn up to work as. So are we asking the right questions? Are we listening? Are we hearing? Which are two different things. Um, and are we really understanding who this person is? Are we creating space for them to be able to say, actually... I'm not aligned with this project. This is my flag. I think this is a blocker. You know, are we creating those spaces? Because if we aren't, what we're doing is we're driving, driving people to deliver on things that they, they don't feel psychologically safe working on. And so build that relationship first, allow people to show up as their whole selves. And then when you have those tough conversations, they're a lot easier to have because you're, you're coming at it from a place of mutual trust. So being kind to yourself is so, so important. I think often comparing yourself to others is the worst thing you can do. It was Teddy Roosevelt who said that comparison is the thief of joy. Why would you count someone else's blessings instead of your own? Like I, I remember working for a crisis team over in West London, which is attached to Imperial College, right? Genius college for mathematicians, scientists. And you'd have people that had been top of the tree in their secondary school, done really well. And then suddenly they were surrounded by other geniuses and no longer were they at the top of the tree. They were like 25 in their class and they literally could not hand to them. They were then a failure. They could not see the bigger picture. They could not take a helicopter view and compare themselves to any other student within the UK. They compared themselves to that year group and they would rather have a, a diagnosed mental illness. So there was a reason for them becoming 25 or they'd rather die. And I find that absolutely shocking that a person would rather not be on this planet rather than not get an A. And that's how much kind of pressure is put on our younger kids nowadays. So this idea of kindness might sound, I don't know, lefty, woke, wishy-washy, fluffy, some may say. Uh, maybe it's the just for those organisations that plant trees, that have mindfulness at lunch some kind of vegan menu in the cafeteria aisle. <laughs> oat milk, frappuccinos. <laughs> I do enjoy an oat milk frappuccino, actually. <laughs> um, I've changed, man. <laughs> but anyway, no, kindness isn't woke. Kindness is good for business. Kindness is good for performance. Even the F1 teams that Stacey works with embrace kindness. When you're working for a high-performance team, like the the trials and tribulations, and also like what you give, like life-wise. Like a lot of those guys are like away every single week. They Their sleep patterns all over the place. And like the highs and the lows of the win is like difficult. And I think it's the same with, if you think about like 
other type of performers, musicians, you know, and there's also not just the drivers, but the whole team around them that sacrifice their life, go away from their families. And, you know, so I think the Formula One team that I work with are very forward thinking about supporting their staff and also want to be making sure that, you know, if people are struggling, that they're able to come out and speak out and get the support that they need, right? So kindness to yourself is so important and it can include challenging our own assumptions about ourselves and our circumstances. Leanne taught me this idea of cognitive thinking error. And it's really common when you're feeling stressed or overwhelmed or unsure about the future. You may have heard it called irrational thinking or irrational beliefs. And whilst they're irrational, they're definitely not uncommon. Bend are uncommon and I think this is why psychoeducation is really important by understanding ourselves and us our own thoughts as, as humans how our mind works will help us be kind to ourselves and over time be kind to others. There are many many different types of thinking errors. Um, there may be some that are more common and I think if we can start to identify these types of thinking errors in ourselves and in our teams that will really start to help us be more effective and empathic as managers. So to name a few that you might see pop up or observe in either yourself or others more frequently, uh, mind reading or jumping to conclusions, particularly conclusions that we don't have control over. Um, for example, if I don't work overtime, then I'll get sacked. That is an example, an example of mind reading. Another one is all or nothing thinking or thinking in extremes. So things like uh, my job is awful. This um, this situation is terrible. Uh, this customer is the worst. This always happens to me. That's all or nothing thinking. Labeling is another type of thinking error that can be very detrimental to our self-esteem, to our self-efficacy. This is where we basically call ourselves names. We'll say, I'm an idiot. I'm stupid. Um, you know, why would anybody, you know, want to be around me because I'm such an idiot? That's a type of labeling of ourselves that is, is, as I said, is really destructive. That's probably one as well you'll find coming up within your teams as well. If they are struggling with stress, um, they'll start to, to label themselves in this way. And the final one that is quite common, phonyism. This will probably sound familiar. It's where you'll say things like, you know, if I, if I perform badly, people will see the real me. They'll know that I'm a fraud. That is essentially imposter syndrome and phonyism is a thinking error that sits behind imposter syndrome. So there are some common thinking errors. There are many others. I would absolutely suggest that you try to start to identify these in your own way of thinking and with those in your teams. And to help with that, Al, I thought we would finish this episode with a little suggested exercise, a little challenge for our listeners to maybe start to help them identify these thinking errors. What do you think? Yeah, but I'm terrible at these exercises. See what I just did there? I labelled. Very good. Very good, Al. You're all over this. <laughs> Only because I know that if, if I'm really stressed or if I'm having a bit of a bad day and I drop something, I do tend to go, oh, you're a dick, Al. <laughs> because, and Leanne always shouts me for it. But I was, I, before I was like, oh, well, I'm just, you know, I'm just expressing how frustrated I am. But she's right. That is labelling and that's not very helpful. But so this exercise, what do we need to do? 
So this is, dare I, dare I use the word journaling? Oh, I know no. we have some British listeners that might be like, hmm. Although I think that is, their opinion is changing. What can really help us to identify these thinking errors is to create a record of them and to start to identify patterns. So the first thing to do, and I've got a little, is it an anagram? Is that what you call it? It's not an anagram, is it? That's the other one. Acronym or anagram? Acronym, acronym is when it's like NATO. That one. Yep. You've got an acronym. <laughs> yeah. I've called it WTFG. Oh, I like it. Very, yeah. very gangster and contemporary. Okay, G. <laughs> okay, G. <laughs> so the W, W. Yep. What were you thinking? What was it? What was the thinking error? Just write it down exactly as it appeared in your head. So as Al said, you know, you drop something, you say, oh, you're such an idiot. Just write that down. I'm such an idiot. The T, timing. Where were you? Try to think about the place, the situation. Was it at home? Was it at work? Was it after a terrible phone call with a customer or with a colleague? The other aspect of timing as well is how many times did you think about it afterwards? Particularly if you've labeled yourself, how many times have you repeated that in your head that you're such an idiot or you're such a failure? Do you tend to have these types of thoughts in similar situations? So, for example, is it after a moment of confrontation or a moment of um, of high stress, meeting a deadline? Are there any patterns in terms of the timing of these thinking areas? So that's your T. Your F is your feeling. Once you have the thought and the situation, identify the emotion that it causes to you, that thinking error. Is it frustration? Is it anger? Is it sadness? Is it embarrassment? Is it humiliation? Is it insecurity? What is the feeling that comes along with that with that thinking error? And why that's important is that often we're not very good at being congruent in how we're thinking and how we're feeling or expressing how we're feeling uh, with the right emotion. For example, we might feel very angry on the inside, but externally we're expressing that as tears and it looks like sadness. So labeling the feeling we experience along with that thinking error can also help us understand it a little bit more. And finally, G, that's where we want to group the themes together. So after a while, a few days, the end of the week, look through the notes that you've made and try to group these thoughts into some type of theme. Is it when you'll have, you know, they always happen after an interaction with a certain manager, a certain customer, a certain person. Is it a certain time of day? Is it a certain context? Is it more in home-based situations? What themes can we pull together? And it could be anything from a person to skipping breakfast that day. Any theme that brings these things together can help you understand them and identify them. In terms of the thinking errors themselves, you might want to try and group them together in terms of the definition of the thinking error. Or you can look at something more simple for things like you know, thoughts that are always, always or never will go together. That extreme thinking. I always miss important meetings. I never say smart things. Nobody appreciates me. So just to recap that WTFG, that's where the timing, the feeling, and then grouping those things together to see any patterns.
Once you've done this for a couple of weeks, maybe a month, this is a type of objective data that's going to really help you to understand when you've been unkind to yourself and why you've been unkind to yourself. Sometimes it's not that obvious. Sometimes it's hard to catch. If we can write it down, if we can reflect on these things, we can see these patterns, we can start to take steps to be more kind to ourselves. And as I said, over time, more kind to others. I love it. I love it. I didn't expect to end up with an exercise. I really like that. It just, I'm, I was, I was doing the exercise myself when I was, um, uh, when, when I last called myself an idiot and it was when I tripped on the stairs yesterday morning and spilled some coffee on the stairs. Um, and I remember being really stressed yesterday because we just moved into a new house where we everything was all over the place, walking up the stairs. And it's only today I discovered that one of the stairs is very slightly higher than the rest of them. And that's probably why I tripped. So I'm thinking back doing my WTFG on that. Um, and the times when I do, when I do call myself an idiot is usually when something, I'm really stressed about something or we're doing a pod the next day and I feel like I've not prepared enough or something like that. So this is, this is really cool. Did you make that up? Yeah. <laughs> Did I make it up? The exercise itself? No, the exercise <laughs> itself is, is a reflective practice to help us identify thinking errors. I think it's actually based in neuroscience where I read it from initially, um, but in terms of the WTFG, yeah, I thought something catchier. Because you always shout at me for not catchy names. So <laughs> you always shout at me. Extreme thinking. <laughs> well, there we go. There's another example. So, Lee, how much have we, have we covered everything? Should we just quickly go through those three again? Yes. Yeah, so we have talked about the pillars of a human-centric culture and had three awesome guests to help us do that along the way. That first pillar is intentional collaboration. The second pillar is flexible work experiences. And finally, the third pillar, empathetic management. So if you enjoyed listening to our guests, go find them on LinkedIn, uh, give them a poke. Because can you that's still a thing on LinkedIn? Are you allowed to do that? Can you write I, on their I wall? I don't think in these times one is allowed to poke. <laughs> but go and go and give them a nudge. Tell them that you listened to, you heard them on the Truth Lies and Work Pod, and that you enjoyed them. You thought they were great. If you didn't think they were great, then just keep your keep your thoughts to yourself. <laughs> keep that judgment to yourself. Exactly. We have learned. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, so next week have we have we've got about five episodes planned, and we're not sure which one's coming in next week. Do we have we finalized it, Lee? Yes, we do. September next week, getting back into the full swing of it. Maybe you've had an indulgent summer. I know that we accidentally have in terms of the old cash money. So we will definitely be looking for ways to improve our financial well-being on the run up to Christmas. And your employees may well be looking to do the same. So we are talking financial well-being next week. We have three incredible guests we are talking to. Am I allowed to say? No. I think we should keep okay. it for next week because one one of them you've been chasing down for about nine months and you finally got. I haven't been chasing I haven't been chasing them down. It's taken me that long to pluck up the courage to actually get in touch <laughs> with them and ask them. Once I asked, they were like, Yeah, sure, sounds great. And I was like, Really? <laughs> well there you go. Yeah, There's a cliffhanger. Like, There's a cliffhanger to leave it on. So we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye bye. It seems to be flexible work experience. Is it just the bit up? Eyes and teeth. Eyes and teeth. Tits and teeth. Oh, tits and teeth. <sighs> I'm leaving that in. <laughs>